So last week, the Apostle John gave us an exam. And he did it two plus chapters in. A lot of teaching. And then he said, I'm going to test you. And he asked us last week to examine ourselves in light of all the teachings we've had thus far. And he, he, he essentially split the entire world in two. Those who practice sin and those who practice righteousness. And he said, if, you, if you're continuously practicing sin, habitual, characteristic sin, if you're, the trajectory of your life, your daily movement is against God and rebellion against God and against his laws and against his son, he said, then you're still dead in your transgressions. He says, but if you examine yourself and you see that you are pursuing righteousness, not made perfect yet, not sinless perfectionism, but you are pursuing righteousness, that you are practicing righteousness by the power of God according to his word. And that means sinning and confessing and turning and repenting and being healed. If you see that trajectory of your life, the habitual character being changed into the image of God, then he says rejoice and be glad because you know Christ. Because nobody on, on the path of sin, the trajectory of sin, knows Jesus. And everybody who is practicing righteousness does. And so John says, examine yourselves in light of that. And some of us came out, if you did like me, going, wow, this is a hard exam. It is hard. Not an understanding, but to examine ourselves in light of this. And if you made it out of here last week and you were praising God, saying, thank you, Lord, I am practicing righteousness, I have assurance in Christ, he brings you back into the exam room today. It was a two-part exam. Actually, there's more coming. And so he calls us this morning to examine ourselves on another level. We had doctrinal examination last week, practicing sin, practicing righteousness. You have an ethical examination today, this morning. Look at verse 11. The Apostle John said, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says, Last week I talked to you about practicing sin and practicing righteousness. This week I'm going to talk to you about love. And I'm going to talk to you specifically about your love for one another. And this is by no means a new teaching. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel repeatedly said this. We have it in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so John comes and he takes Jesus' message, a message that we know, a message that they had heard all those that he was writing to, the churches throughout um, in, in the Ephesus area, all those churches in that area, the churches throughout the centuries have received this. And he said, John is teaching this because Jesus taught this, and we need to hear it as well. Do we really love one another as Christ loves us? And so John takes this teaching and he, he brings Cain in. Cain, why Cain? Cain is the prototype of the world. Right? I mean, Cain came and he was characterized by hatred. His origin is evil. And we see, we will see today that he practiced murder and his end is death. And so John takes Cain and he juxtaposes it with Christ, the life of Christ, where his origin is God and his practice is love and the end is life. 
And the two extremes are going to come at us. And by God's grace, we're going to see them and hear them and enter the exam room again with the Holy Spirit proctoring this exam that we might examine ourselves well. Cain or Christ? Last week, practicing righteousness, practicing sin. This week, Cain or Christ? Which one? So let's do that by looking at three things. One, the love of Cain. Two, the love of Christ. And three, the love of the church. The love of Cain, the love of Christ, and the love of the church. Point number one, the love of Cain. You have in parenthetic form, it says, for self. His love was a selfish love. Immediately following the command in verse 11 to love one another, John jumps to Cain in verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, For those of you who do not know about Cain, Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. He is the brother of Abel. And we hear about him early in the Testament, the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4. This is what we hear. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord, sacrifices to the Lord. This is what the Bible says. That Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now lest we misunderstand why God rejected Cain's offering, we're told in Hebrews, we don't need to speculate on this. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 tells us why. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, Abel was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. In other words, it wasn't the grain offering versus the fat offering. It wasn't the offering itself. It was the heart of each man bringing the offering before God. Abel went before God to sacrifice in faith. Cain went before God to sacrifice in his own work, by his own merit, by his own power. And it revealed the heart of both men. In Genesis 4, 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Listen to the grace of God. He says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted also? But if you do not do what is right, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. But Cain refused to listen to God. He refused to accept the promise. Instead, we're told in verse 8, he went to his brother Abel and he said, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. God in his grace said to Cain, in spite of his sacrifice that was not in faith, he said to Cain, listen, why is your face downcast? Do what is right. Come to me in faith. Put your trust and your hope in me and you'll be accepted too, just like your brother. He says, but if you don't, Sin is crouching at your devour and wants to devour you. It's right there. Cain refused to listen to God. He followed in the footsteps of Satan, who Jesus said was a murderer from the beginning. And Cain murdered his brother. That even sounds mild. In the Hebrew, the better word is butcher. He butchered his brother. He killed Abel, committing the first murder in human history. But why kill, why kill Abel? 
He went to sacrifice for God and God was not pleased. Why attack his brother? What did Abel have to do with it? John tells us in verse 12, look again. Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The cause of Abel's death was not Abel's wickedness. The cause of Abel's death was his righteousness. Cain saw the love that God had for Abel and and Abel's love for God and faith. And Cain hated it. And because he hated it, he had extreme jealousy, filling him with a desire to destroy his brother Abel. In other words, Cain saw that his religion of self-love and self-exaltation failed before God. Cain had no love for God and he had no love for his brother. He had a love only for himself to be glorified, to be exalted. And so he had two choices. He could either confess his sins before God, hear God's promise, hear God's command, come to God, repent and believe and follow God just like his brother Abel. Or he could do what? He could get rid of the good one. The menacing one, the faithful one. He chose the latter. He refused righteousness. He refused faith. And he kills his brother. He indeed, Cain, is the prototype of the world which manifests itself every day in self-exaltation. We see every day the pride and the hatred and the murder that perpetuates a world apart from Jesus Christ. The world is Cain's offspring. And so John rightly says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. The Cain spirit that hated his brother Abel is still alive and well today. And if you are pursuing God in faith, just like Abel did, then the world will hate you too. And we've talked about this. We talked about this several weeks ago. We ought not be surprised that the world comes against those who love Christ and follow Christ. And who are living by faith. And although right now, in this country at this time, they may not be trying to kill you physically, certainly in other countries around the world this very morning, our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church are suffering this extreme hostility. And even though we may not have that now, we do know that all those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all those who do not put their faith in God, have a Cain spirit as well. All those. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, he says, Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. We ought not be surprised that the world comes against us. We ought not be surprised when our own family members, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, come against us because of our love for Christ. Abel did nothing wrong to deserve death, and yet he was killed by his brother Cain. Now, lest you sit or I stand in judgment, we must remember that we all started off like Cain. Every single one of us started off like this. We were all filled with hatred. None of us wanted to submit to God. We all wanted to be self-glorified. And if you don't have that position right now, if you don't have a Cain heart right now, then it's by God's grace only. That he came to you, that he called you, that he saved you, and that he breathed new life into you. And so now, 
Now you live by faith like Abel. Now you want to serve the living God like Abel. And so the apostle comes before us and he gives us the exact opposite of the command. The command says in verse 11, love one another, love the brothers. And he comes on and says, this is what love is not. Cain revealed the exact opposite of what love is not. So he starts us off with that and then he's going to bring us to the other extreme. He's going to bring us. We, we, we need a better model than Cain. Cain did not model a life of faith. Cain did not model a life of loving his brother. We need a better model. Christ is that model. He is the supreme example of a man who lived for the well-being, the true well-being of his brothers and sisters. Look at point two. The love of Christ for others. The love of Cain was for self, and that's really no love at all. The love of Christ is for others. What assurance can you have this morning? Can you walk out of this exam room and say, I do not have the heart of Cain. I mean, none of us, none of us want to say, oh, well, yeah, that's me. I mean, that's me. I just, I hate, I hate my brother. I hate my sister in Christ. None of us want to be like that. So we want to say, how can I measure that? How can I examine myself in light of this teaching? How do we know that our love is truly for God and one another and not for ourselves? How do we know this? Look at verse 14. John tells us this. Verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, out of the darkness into the light, out of Cain and into Christ. We know this because why? We love the brothers. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. The word here, we know, he says, we can be certain. We can know that we passed that test. If what? If we love the brothers. He's saying, here's the exam. Do you know Christ? Have you moved out of death into life? The answer is, for us, well, do I love my brothers? If the answer is yes, then he says, you've passed out of death into life. If the answer is no, then we still abide in death. And death still abides in us. The big if we love our brothers. Look at verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so just like last week, what does John do? John comes and he divides all of humanity into two groups again. Last week, practicing sin and practicing righteousness. This week, Cain and Christ. Hating your brother and loving your brother. I said last week, this is not terribly difficult to understand, but it sure is hard to test ourselves. Because this is a hard test. Those who are still dead in their sins are like Cain. Christians, those who have been brought out of spiritual death into spiritual life, love as Christ loves. Jesus said in John 5, 24, he says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed, he has past tense, crossed over from death to life. Already happened. And so we're not looking at a way that we should act or a way that we should love to move from death to life. We're examining as to whether or not we've moved from death to life already. How do we know? The love that's in us. The love that we show. John is saying this is the great litmus test for this possession of eternal life. This is it. I mean, if you had to pick one, 
You say, well, give me, give me one way. It's not your baptism. It's not your Bible reading. It's not your devotion time. It's not being in church on Sunday morning. All those are good and right. But you want to know the one? I mean, the, 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 the test that will really let you know? It's this one. Do you love the brothers? Do you love the sisters? Real, abiding, sacrificial, biblical love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. What is the first one? Come on, what is it? It's love. There's an order to that. It's love. What is the sign of a genuine faith according to Galatians 5, 6? In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Of the three abiding Christian graces, which will never end, which is the greatest? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Without love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you are nothing and you gain nothing. I mean, again and again and again, we see love as a foundational, pivotal movement for us in Christ. Do we know him? Love for the professing believer is the surest test of our life in Christ. And that means, saints, that the opposite, us not having love, us being like Cain, whether you commit physical murder or not, means that we have not passed from death to life. It means we don't have Christ. And that's why John is bringing it to our attention this morning, that we might evaluate ourselves in light of this eternal teaching. Now, many professing believers will hear this and they will think to themselves immediately and quickly, and I don't want you to think immediately and quickly. They will think, well, of course I'm saved. I must be saved. I must be saved because I don't hate people like Cain. Well, not all people, some, but not, not that bad. I hate some people, all right, but not all people. But the people I do hate, I never murder them, not like that anyway. And we do all this mental judo to try to squeeze ourselves in but when we hear this command to love we must realize there are two key pieces to it one who god is calling us to love and two the magnitude of love that we're called to express who he's calling us to love and the magnitude of that love let's look at the first one who are we to be loving here who are we to be loving and i've heard this taught in many ways some good, some not so good. In my studies this week, which reaffirmed my studies for the past several years, this is not a general teaching on love. It's not a teaching on loving the world. It's not even a teaching on loving your enemies. You're, you're commanded to love your enemies, right? Christ said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is not a general love and this is not a loving your enemies. We're, God assumes if you're a believer, you're going to do that in Christ. This love here, this is a love for brothers and sisters in the faith. This is a love for Christians. This passage, look again at verse 14. It is a specific love for those God has saved. Look at verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love the brothers. You say, well, no, wait, wait, brothers is everybody, right? We're all brothers and sisters of God, right? All of humanity. No, not at all. The Bible makes a very clear distinction between the family of God and the descendants of this world. 
We're told in verse 13 that the world hates the brothers like Cain. They love in the exact opposite manner. They love the brothers like Cain loved. John intentionally departs terms he used before. Beloved, little children. He intentionally moves away from those. And he brings in unique address of brothers to drive home this single, most salient, most difficult point of this entire sermon. Because we'll hear this command to love and we'll say, I love my wife. The pagans do. I love my children. Pagans do. I love my next door neighbor. Pagans do. God's saying, do you love the church? God's saying, do you love those that Christ has saved? God's saying, do you love those that are sitting in this very room as Christ loves you? John Stott explains the practice in this manner. Listen closely. This is a very convicting quote for me. True Christians who have passed from death unto life will hunger for Christian fellowship. They will not forsake the assembling of themselves together, but will delight to meet together, to worship and pray together, and to talk together on spiritual topics, while their personal relationship with each other will be marked by unselfish and caring love. I believe that with all my heart to be true. And I read it and I I find myself falling woefully short of this type of love for you. Loving God's children. Loving the saints in your midst. These are the people to whom God is referring. We are the object of the exam. The test is being given and we think that we're taking the test and we are the very object of the test itself. Are we loving one another? Are we loving those most unlike us? Are we loving those most difficult to love? Are we loving those that are jaded by life and are hard to be around? Are we loving all those in our midst because we have one common bond and that's the blood of Christ? It's Jesus Christ. So the first question for us this morning, the first question is, do you love Christians? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love those saints that God has put into your midst? More appropriately, do you love the church family? Do you love the brothers and sisters to whom God has placed in your life, called you into? Now, before you can answer this question, because most of us, I know, I know everyone wants to answer with a yes. And most of us will answer yes quickly. Before you answer the question, you guys say, well, what type of love are we talking about here? Right? I mean, we have to have some operating parameters on this love. Are we talking a warm affection toward? I hug most people when I see them. But is that, is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about a general friendliness? That I, I'm, I'm usually friendly to most people. Are we talking about an acquaintance that is established based upon a Sunday morning gathering or a Wednesday night prayer session? What type of love are we talking about here? Something deeper. Something more radical, more real, and more costly is what John's talking about. Look at verse 16. 
You say, I want to know what this type of love is. I really want to know. I want to be able to take this exam. Verse 16, by this we know love. Are you ready? You got to hold on for this one. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What kind of love is God talking about? We're not talking about some shallow, temporal, Hollywood-esque, Cain type of self-love. He's talking about the very love that Christ revealed to us in his dying on the cross for us. A love that is ultimately sacrificial in nature. A love that is truly concerned about the well-being of others. A love that you could argue when, when, when in, in co- the context of Christ and the cross infinitely surpasses any love or concern we have for ourselves. The boundaries are blown away. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. If Cain is used by John here as the extreme example of hate where his actions led to death both for his brother and for himself, then Jesus Christ is being used by John as the extreme example of love where Christ's death led to life for his brothers. Cain's death led to the death of Abel. Christ's death leads to our life and our hope and our eternity. Life is a person's most prized possession, and to deny him of life is to commit murder. It it is the greatest expression of hatred to move to that last degree where you say, you know, I've done everything. I've smited them. I've I've, I've cursed their name. I've ignored them. You know, I've destroyed their property. The last thing I can do, I can kill them. That's the extreme expression of hatred. Conversely, John says, To give one's life on behalf of another, to lay down your life for a brother, is the extreme expression of love. If Cain showed us hatred in the extreme by killing Abel, Jesus Christ showed us love in the extreme by dying on the cross for us. John is trying to separate these two as far as the east is from the west. Verse 13 in John 15 Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. No greater love than this. God revealed, God the Father revealed his love for mankind by sending his only begotten son to die on the cross for us. Jesus Christ, the son of God, revealed his true love for fallen man by being lifted up on the cross as a ransom for many. He laid down his life. He took up the cross so that you and I and all who repent and believe can have life in him. So that we won't suffer the consequences of our own death. Of our own sin. He did that so that we might have life now. So that we might love God now instead of idols. That we might live now for others rather than for ourselves. So we might live now for heaven instead of hell. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of life into death. Why? How? Because we love the brothers in this manner. You see how much more difficult the test just got? It was one thing for God to say, you want to know if you pass from death to life? Do you love the brothers? And you say, yes, amen. He says, wait a minute. Do you love the brothers like my son loves you? Do you love each other as Christ loves you? 
I say no, I, I don't. I don't. Sacrificially, as a servant, actively pursuing the well-being of my brothers and sisters over me. Verse 16, the imperative that adds to the test. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This calling to love one another as Christ loves us, we cannot do unless God dwells in us. The standard is perfection in love. Christ loved us perfectly. And so when, when John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, loving one another as Christ loves us, the, the first response is, I can't and I don't. Forgive me, Lord. And then, by your grace and your power, enable me, Lord. I pray that one initial response for us all will be, I don't, I haven't. Forgive me, Lord. But upon hearing this word, enable me, Lord. The arrogant response to this is catastrophic because you won't hear it. We're talking about a love for one another, physical, spiritual, relational, emotional. A love for one another that is total for the other person, for the brother or sister. If you have this love in you, even a little bit, then it means that the Spirit of God dwells within you. If you have this love in you for one another, it means the love of Christ is in you. Why? How come? Because you cannot love as Christ loves unless his love is in you already. You do not have the power to love as Christ loves. I'll go, you don't have the power to love anybody as Jesus Christ loves unless Christ dwells in you. The world, your family, your children, your wife, no one. But we know without a doubt You cannot love one another. You will not love the church of Christ unless Jesus Christ dwells in you. We can look around the room. We don't have much in common. We really don't. I mean, we're not gathered here because we all love sports cars. Praise God. We're not all gathered here because we all like reading books. We're not all gathered here because we like doing this on Sunday. We're gathered here because of Christ. And so to love one another in the body of Christ, apart from Christ dwelling in us, will not happen because we're not that much alike otherwise. I'm a bit cantankerous. I get easily excited. I'm not all that easy to love. Ask my wife. Some of you aren't either. Ask your wives. So why do we love each other? Christ. He's the common bond. So God loves us first. And in so doing, he cultivates in our hearts a love for one another. He does this great work first. And then he says, love one another. And you say, I can in you. I can in you. I can't without you. And I can in you. And by loving one another, you say, then I know. I know the love of Christ must dwell within me. And if the love of Christ dwells within me, that means the spirit of God is in me. And if the spirit of God is in me, that means what? That means I pass from death to life. That means I'm alive in God. That means my hope is secure. My my eternity is heaven and God. That means I should sing more 
and pray more and serve more and share the gospel more. All right, so question number one, do you love the brothers? God's children. Question number two, do you, have, do you love them sacrificially as Jesus loves you? Now, I've got to tell you, I wrestled with that for years. Right? By this we know love, that you lay down yourself for one another, for a brother. And it's, the, the extreme is so hypothetical. The hypothetical is so extreme. I don't even know how to apply it to my life. I mean, I really don't. I mean, it, it, this affirmation, it, it's either impossible for me to contemplate or easy for me to say, well, of course I'd die for you. Yes, I love you. Really? Can I even say that I would? Can you say that for me? Unless we actually are there with the tip of the sword at our throat. Oh, sure, I love you. No, wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. What does this look like on a daily basis? And what assurance do I have that the love of Christ dwells in me, that I would lay my life down for you? And what assurance do I have that you love me like that and you'll lay down your life for me? Saints, if I'm not willing to get up early in the morning and give you a ride to the airport or spend an hour a week discipling you, I really don't think I'm going to give my life for you. If I'm not inclined to visit you when you're sick, lend you money when you're poor, or sacrifice my time and energy to love you when you're struggling, I don't think I'm going to give my life for you. Why should I think that I'd be willing to die for you if I won't do these things? And so what does John do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he takes this this extreme expression of love, Christ dying for us. He says, now let's make it real practical. Let's see what that day would actually look like if you are come to that place where you are called to die. Let's see what it looks like on a daily basis. Point number three. You ready? How, how you, if you're still with me, say amen. All right. If you got your seatbelt on, tighten it up here. Because 17 and 18, he says, all right, I'm going to make it. I, I've already made it hard enough, right? Love one another as Christ loves us. That's hard enough. He says, now I'm going to show you what that looks like. There are two responses to this last point, and only two. Lord, forgive me, for I do not love like this. Save me. Or Lord, I praise God that you've cultivated love in my heart like this. Look at verses 17 and 18. Here we go. The love of the church. So the love of Cain was for self. The love of Christ was for others. The love of the church is for the brothers. For the brothers. Verse 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? He says, little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not many of us, not many of you will be called to lay down your life for a brother or sister in the Lord. But you are constantly given the immeasurable opportunity and blessing to daily lay down your life in part for a brother or sister in Christ. Not many of us will be called to die for a brother or sister, but every single day God gives us the blessing and the opportunity, the immeasurable blessing to lay down our lives in part for one another. Pieces of our lives. Your money. 
your time, your possessions, your wisdom, your knowledge, your labor, your prayers for the family of God, for us. One commentator put it well. He said, the love displayed in the life of Jesus that we are called to display one to another is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. To surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. Using the things that you value to enrich and bless those in Christ who are in need. Now most of us again will say, I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have no animosity towards anybody. I'm a fun, loving, happy guy. I love everybody. But grammatically, the apostle does something very interesting here. And please forgive me for the grammar, but it's necessary. I want you to look at verse 16 again. John moves from verse 16 talking about the brothers in the plural. Notice this, it's striking. He says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, brothers general, in the context of the church. And then in verse 17, he switches to the singular. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Why the shift? Why do we shift from brother plural to brother singular? Why the movement here? Another commentator put it better than I. He said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exacerbating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. He said, loving, just listen, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Saying you love everybody in general, I love all my brothers and sisters, I love all of humanity in general, is maybe an excuse for us not loving one another in particular. And yet that's the type of love that we're called to here. Personal, individual, specific, intentional love. Is that, is that not the, God, the love that God displayed for us? Was it not personal? Did he not call you by name? Was it not specific, bringing you out of the darkness into the light? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, he said that God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And it says, in love, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It wasn't this, oh, God says, I love everybody. I love everybody. He says, I'm going to love you specifically. I'm going to love you individually. Personal, intentional love. God loves you not as a number and not as some random face in the crowd. He loves you before the foundations of the world. The Bible says he foreknew you before anything ever was. He predestined you to be saved before anything ever was. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. He, there is no more specific individual act of love anywhere in the entire universe than the love that God has for those whom he saves. And then he says, now love one another like that. Love one another specifically. You say, well, how? Look at verse 17 again. 
If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, that's a brother or sister in Christ, yet chooses his heart, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All of all those in here right now, including myself, who want to read this love as a plural love, you've got to bring it down to the, to the particular. You've got to make it singular. You have to make it specific. We must, or we're not going to, we're going to, we'll vacate the meaning of the text. He calls us to meet the needs of our brothers in action. Did you notice that? He says, meet the needs in action. Let's look at meeting the needs first. It is truly extraordinary, this teaching. Meeting the specific needs of our brothers and sisters in the church who are in need. Okay? This teaching is so plain that we don't need to expand upon it. But I'm going to anyway. And this is it. He said, if you know a brother and sister in Christ who's in need and you have what they need, give it to them. Give it to them. Joyfully. If you see someone in need in the church and you have it and you don't give it to them, John says, how can the love of the Father be within you? How can it be? If you are a member of this family, this church family, and you come to me and you need money, I mean, you really need money. You don't say, hey, Pastor, you know, I really want a big screen television for Christmas. I'm, I'm talking you really need money to pay your bills. And if I have money to give you, and I say, no. Is that love? Is that love? If your brother or sister comes to you downcast, and they need a word of encouragement, they need a, a, they need a, a conversation, a letter, a song, a text, something, and you have the encouragement to give and you do not give it, is that love? If your brother or sister comes to you and they need biblical counsel and you have the counsel, you've worked through that problem, you know the scriptures, you don't even need to study it, you have it, and you don't give it to them, are they being loved? If you have brothers and sisters who long for fellowship, Long for community. Long to be known as a brother or sister in a real family. Not by name. And you don't spend time with them. And you don't, you don't invite them into your house. You don't have coffee. You don't do lunch. Or you don't do anything. You just say, hey, how are you? Go be well. They long for that. And you do not give that. And you have that to give. John says, God says, how can the love of God be within you? Our love for God and God's love abiding in us will be displayed in our meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter what they are. Financial needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, relational needs, all the needs. We're to love each other holistically. If the love of God abides in you, it will be displayed in meeting these needs. Some of the conditions here, and there are a few, and these are very practical. You must have what your brother is lacking. Two, you must see what your brother needs. And three, you must not close your heart. You must have what your brother is lacking. You cannot give that which you do not have. If your brother comes to you for counsel on a particular biblical issue and you do not have it, don't give it. 
But you can say, you know what, let's study this together. Let's work on this together. Let's gather some older, wiser men or women and study this together. You can do that. In the context of our passage, John is talking about physical needs. Money, food, shelter, housing. And he's saying, if your brother or sister comes to you with a physical need and you can meet that physical need, he says, meet it. And he doesn't mean meet it in the Western perspective. You see, in the Western world, we meet the need if we have surplus. It doesn't mean your brother comes to you and says, you know what, I need some food. And you go into your pantry and say, oh, I got tons of extra food. And then you give them some. This teaching is to love one another as Christ loves us. How did Christ love us? He sacrificed his own life. So be really careful when you're evaluating whether or not you have what your brother needs based upon your own possessions. It's not talking surplus. It means we will give sacrificially of our time, of our money, of our energies. It goes way beyond the material possessions. If your brother's lonely and needs companionship, meet the need. If your brother's confused and needs counsel and wisdom, meet the need. If your brother's battling sin and needs accountability and prayer, meet the need. If your brother's discouraged and depressed and needs encouragement, meet the need. Physical, spiritual, relational, whatever it is, we are called to and should want to meet our brother's and sister's needs, especially in the family of God. This is our family. If my son came to me and said, Dad, I'm struggling with joy. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with discouragement. And I went, so? You'd say, what a, you're a terrible father. That's your son. If a brother or sister in Christ comes to us with the same struggle, and we say, maybe we wouldn't say so. We'd say, okay, I'll, I'll pray for you, and not really even pray for them. In the family of God, there's something catastrophically wrong. It should not only be our duty, it should be our choice. It should not be just a compulsion. It should be out of love, out of a deep love, a deep desire. So first, we, if we have what they need, we need to meet it. Secondly, it says we must see what our brothers and sisters' needs are. Now, this sounds simple enough. I'll just, I'll just see it. I'll just see it. But we have two problems today. One of which is we live in a culture that is so radically isolated that we don't see the needs on a daily basis. I mean, many of you will leave here today and you won't see each other until next Sunday. And I imagine all of us will have needs between now and next Sunday. Probably without exception. So these needs go unseen. And if they go unseen, then they go unmet. Now part of the problem is us. In that our pride prevents us from talking to one another and expressing that need. From not saying, you know, I need help. What if I need help? I got to move my house. And I have too much stuff. I have the sin of gluttony. I need to move my house from here to here. Will you help me? It's been a tight month. I'm struggling financially. Will you help me? I'm lacking joy. Will you help me? Pride keeps us from sharing this with one another. And when you do that, not only are you denying yourself the blessing of having a brother and sister serve you and minister to you, 
not only are you denying that person the opportunity to know they truly love Christ because they're serving you, but worst of all, you're denying God the glory because you won't tell people what you need. I am terrible at this. I'm terrible at it. Do you need anything? No, I'm just fine, just fine. Liar, liar, liar. I need much. I need much. But I must share that with you. And you must share it with one another. And you must share it with me if we're to help. There's a flip side to this too. It's not just we're not expressing that need. Many of us don't want to meet it. We'll never say that. I mean, we know it's counter scripture. So we'll never say, I don't want to meet your need. But we don't want to meet many of our needs. How do we know this? If we know that we can't know one another's needs by doing this for two hours on a Sunday morning, if we know that, that the, most of us do not find out each other's needs on a Sunday morning, and we know that we need to be in each other's lives, I mean really in each other's lives, spending time together, talking together, in each other's homes together, praying with one another, having lunch. I say lunch because most of us eat lunch. Most of us eat lunch alone. Stop that and eat with one another. Even 30 minutes. In the morning, you can have a cup of coffee, have a brother or sister come alongside of you. I say we don't want to know these needs because if we really did, we'd spend more time getting to know our brothers and sisters because in so doing, we get to know their needs. We would. We can't just sit back and wait for people to come to us. We can't. We can't say, there was a brother I once knew who said, my conscience is clear, I'll do anything for anybody at any time as long as they ask. Is that the type of act of love that God displayed for us? Did God sit back and say, listen, I'm a good God. I'm a gracious God. I'll do anything for anybody as long as they ask. Is that how he loved us? Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God came to you and made you alive in Christ. We were dead. And God didn't go, all right, who's coming? Because no one came. He said, I will go to them. I know their need. I will go to them and I will meet the need. Saints, more often than not, because of the pride in our culture, because of the pride of fools like me, just meet the need. Instead of, instead of waiting for someone to say, I'm, I'm downcast, I'm discouraged, go to them. Say, can I encourage you? <laughs> when, you when they're struggling taking place, don't just wait and say, well, I'll, I'll help them if they ask. Go and help. What's the worst thing they're going to do? They say, No. You can't see the need. If you can't see the need, you can't meet it. And if we can't meet the need, how are we to affirm our love in Christ? So if you have it, you're to meet it. If you see it, you're to meet it. And then the last piece of this, he says, don't close your heart against him. If you have what your brother needs, see what your brother needs. Says, don't, essentially, don't turn away from it. Right? So if we have possessions, time, money, energy, wisdom, and we see our brother in need, he says, don't close your heart off. Look at verses. Well, let me read to you. I'm going to read to you James chapter 2. 
verses 15, 16, and 17, James says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I will wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? He said, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, if we, if we see the need and we can meet the need and we do not, John says there's no love in you. James says you have no real faith. Whatever we call it. It's not real. Paul says in Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. How can I carry your burden if I do not see it? How can I carry my, your burden if, I do, if my heart is closed off to you? How can I know the love of Christ is within me, the law of Christ, which is to love one another, exists in me if I will not carry your burden? It's understood that if you carry someone's burden, it will be burdensome to you as well. <laughs> right? To carry someone's burden means that there's going to be pain and suffering and hardship as well. All right, lastly, I'm going to close. Look at verse 18. The nature of this love is not simply saying love. It's action. It's deeds. It's in truth. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I love that. He says, little children, let us. John, the apostle John, includes himself in this. He includes himself in this incredible imperative. Actions speaking louder than words. If you say you love one another, if you say, brother, I love you, peace be with you, and it's not substantiated by deed and action and in truth, the Apostle John is saying it's a false statement. It's a hypocritical statement. I would go so far as to say you're better off not saying it because those words will come before the Holy God. Don't say it. If our, if our verbal expressions of love toward one another are not followed and in sync with our actions and deeds in truth toward one another, then it's not real. It's just not real. I love you, but I'm really busy. I, I love you, but I can't spare any time or money or possessions or knowledge or truth or encouragement. I love you deeply, but I'd rather vacate a relationship than stay and work it out. That's not love. If our love is to be genuine biblical love in truth, as John says, then it will be manifest in action, in deed. The commentator Ramsey put it like this. He said, the love of idle sentiment and the love that ends in soothing words is not the love that led Jesus Christ to the cross. The love that led Christ to the cross was in action and in truth. Saints, where would we be if Jesus Christ said, I love you, fallen man, but I will not come from heaven to earth? Where would we be? Where would we be if Jesus Christ said, I care about you deeply, fallen man, but there's no way I'm going to that cross and there's no way I'm drinking that cup? Where would we be if God's professed love for us was not manifest in deed and in truth? If Jesus Christ never took our sins, never experienced the full wrath of God, never rose from the dead, where would we be? We'd still be utterly lost, 
Not a soul saved. I'm so thankful that Christ did not say, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything to redeem you. The love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is displayed in his active, intentional, specific love for mankind. It is sacrificial. It is meeting the needs of others, our brothers and sisters. It is not enough to throw around hollow words. It must be in deed and in truth. Saints, if this is the love that you have for one another, even if it's small, but you have this. You say, I do love my brothers and sisters. I love those who God has gathered here at Camden. And I want to meet their needs. I want to know more of their needs so I can meet them. And I want to do it not to be self-glorified, but I want to do it because I love Christ. Even if you see a little bit of that in you, that's Christ in you. And if you see a lot of it, praise God that the Spirit is working on you in such a wonderful way. John's saying, if you have that love for one another, he's saying, then the love of Christ is in you. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know. But the converse is equally true. That's why he started with Cain. You don't have to go out and physically murder someone to say, oh, I must be like Cain. John says this. He said, you can read your Bible and pray all you want and go to church all you want and give tithes and offerings all you want. You can do all that. But if you do not have a love in your heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of you who are members here, if you do not have a love in your heart for the brothers and sisters in Christ at Camden, and if that love is not being expressed in real action, in meeting their needs, the Apostle John, just as Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of John, not my words, but God's words. He says, the love of God is not in you. And that is a brutal truth. Now, as we present that to all of Christianity today, where do we stand in this test? Where do we stand, Camden, in our love for one another? To what degree are we going intentionally and trying to see one another's needs? How much are we out of our love for God and the Holy Spirit going and meeting those needs? When we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're poor, when we're struggling too. Is that happening? It's a rhetorical question, but it's not hypothetical. Hmm. It's a hard test. We can't pass it. We cannot pass it on our own. Jesus Christ must dwell within us for this test to be passed. Will the men come forward, please? Today we have the blessing of celebrating the Lord's Supper. God the Father displayed his love for us by sending his only begotten Son. God the Son displayed his love for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. God the Holy Spirit displayed his love for us by coming to us and dwelling within us, showing us the holiness of the Father, showing us the need to repent and believe and following Christ. When we celebrate 
when we recognize the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice that represents his blood, we are saying we are coming as a church and recognizing that. Would you help her? Thank you. When we gather and we do this, it is to remember the sacrifice and the love that Christ displayed for us, that he laid down his life for us. It is also for us as a church to gather around the communion table as we take the bread and we take the juice that represents his broken body and his spilled blood in remembrance of him, we take it and say, listen, Lord, listen, one another, I'm in. I'm all the way in. I want to love my brothers and sisters as Christ loves me. I want to see my brothers and sisters in need. And I want to meet those needs. When we do this, it has both a vertical and a horizontal application. Remembering the great work of God through Jesus Christ. And seeing the needs of one another and meeting them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you individually and collectively as one church and we acknowledge that we have not loved one another like this. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for being complacent on this most fundamental teaching. I pray, Lord, that as you forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness, you would cultivate a deep desire in each and every one of us to be a people filled with your love. A people that hear this teaching instead of getting angry or recoiling, submitting to you and loving one another in action and in deed. Lord, we desire to bring you honor and glory Your son said the world might know us to be your disciples in our love for one another. Pour out your blessings upon this church and your church throughout the world that our love would be so radical and so real for one another that it will set the world on its ear. They will not understand this radical, deep, intimate love, brother to sister in Christ. What a blessed testimony we can give to them saying it's Christ, it's his love, it's his power, it's his blood that compels me to love a stranger like this. I ask, Lord, that you would do that mighty work here at Camden over the next several months and years as we grow together as a family that we would learn how to love one another, to meet the needs, to see the needs, to not close our hearts. I praise you for the great work I see you're already doing here in the hearts of many. I pray that you would grow that exponentially so that you be glorified in it all. In Christ's name, amen.